All right, Colin, how are you doing today? I'm good, Harry. How are you? I am doing well. I'm doing excellent. I'm excited. Uh, you know, every time we have a guest on the podcast, you know me, I'm big on like, what's the angle? Why are we having this person on? And I think today we've got a really neat uh, angle. So I'm going to let you introduce uh, Dennis and we'll get right into it. All right, Dennis, it's good to have you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, let me give you, I'll, I'll do your bio, but I, sh I should also note that we're neighbors um, and uh, Dennis lives down the street, but this all happened with uh, you coming on was originally as Harry commented on a tweet you made. And I looked at the tweet, read it, and then went back and looked at who the person was, you know, and I was like, I know this guy, uh, he's my neighbor. And so uh, funny enough, reached out and now here you are. Um, and it also happens that you also know um, Mike Williams from Everything Marketplaces, who uh, Harry and I have, um, uh, I think, LP and his fund. And uh, yeah, so small world uh, moments abound. So um, it's fun. All right. So Dennis, uh, so he's uh, today, he is the, you know, the, the white knight protecting D2C brands from coupon leaks. Um, and that's... Uh, like vigilance IO, right? So, and then previously your co-founder of Live Recover, which was acquired. And uh, I think since then you've uh, started investing through fake uh, VC. Um, not real, maybe, but maybe <laughs> fake. I'm not sure, uh, but I love the tongue in cheek. Uh, you also happen to have some amazing vanity license plates. Um, uh, one that Watch says... I, yeah, I, I enjoy them every time I walk by it and friends are always like, look at that guy's license plate. Um, <laughs> uh, but Dennis has some, some cool cars, uh, and, but one of the license plates says VC, uh, but then the other one says D to C. And uh, I don't know, if you get some more new cars, you're just going to have to come up with even better and better. Uh, I actually have some sitting waiting. So when I get the cars, they're already oh. license plate ready. <laughs> so, um, and then you have a great dog, uh, Moose, a uh, um, little French bulldog that uh, see you walk around the neighborhood all the time. So Awesome. Well, that's the Colin. That was probably the most personal bio we've ever done for one of our guests. Where it's like, you know, he's done some stuff in business, but like, yeah. let's talk about what he's into, his personal life. I'll add another anecdote because I saw if someone really wants to get on Dennis's good side, I think he there's a Ferrari that he's got his eyes on. So if someone really <laughs> wants to make the commitment, uh, it's an older one, so it's probably not too expensive. But I just no. saw him tweet out a picture. Under fifty k. I mean, you know, that's like ten ETH or whatever. So. <laughs> That's awesome. like 150 dollars syndicate investments, I think, right? Um, yeah, so something like that. The math adds up to me. Excellent. Well, uh, Dennis, I'd love, uh, you know, it sounds like Colin knows you pretty well, but for those in our audience who don't know you, I'd love to uh, kind of go over a few rapid fire questions about your sort of angel investing uh, career. And, you know, it sounds like you're still looking to make a few, but uh, I know you've made a bulk and that was really the reason why we wanted to have you on. So we'll talk about your tweet and your analysis and all your follow-up. I love how open uh, you were with sharing the info and uh, sounds like you like to stir things up a little bit too on Twitter, which uh, we're always a fan of. So real quick, uh, help us get to know you so how many angel investments have you made in your lifetime uh i think right now it's 39 actually it might be 40 i think i made one since that tweet okay. um and yeah i started in mid 2020 or q right when q2 of 2020 and uh made my bulk of investments in 2021 and 2022 for better or worse <laughs> got it got it what was your average check size Blended out over the 40 investments, it's just over 200 grand. So it's pretty small in that they're around five to 10K. But 
Um, there are some that are 15 and some that are 2,500. Um, cool. where I just wanted to invest for like pro rata reasons and things like that mm -hmm. to sort of hedge. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing the range too. Cause, uh, that's, uh, that's cool to talk about. What type of startups uh, did you look for and what stage? Well, the first, the first investment I made, that company actually just announced that they're shutting down, uh, which is a bummer because they end up raising like a million and a half and did about five million in revenue and they're going to mm -hmm. sell for a low six figure amount, which is crazy. So no investors mm -hmm. are, are, and no capital is being returned to any of the investors. But that was a DTC brand. And that was because I didn't really know. It was like, to me, investing was like a cool thing to do. And so yeah. they came to me and the valuation was very fair. Uh, all the things lined up. I'm like, eh, I have some extra money. I, I'm not going to go, you know, it's not going to ruin my life over 10 grand if it goes to zero. So like maybe backing these guys would be a good way to start learning how to invest. Mm. So I did that it was DTC. Then my second one was actually a tattoo company, which was a client of my first business live recover. And I invested because it, in my mind, I'm like, if we ever sell this business, I want to build a tattoo brand because I have a lot of tattoos. But then I saw their sort of historical trend within our app. And I reached out to them and I was like, look, you are a client of mine and you're the only tattoo client we have in like 6,000 clients. I want to back you. I don't know if you're raising money or not. And they were like, actually we are. Uh, and that's actually like probably my best investment so far, but a lot of direct to consumer, um, on the, on the sort of product CPG side and even, uh, software side, and then a lot of B2B, uh, SaaS, but specifically retail technology enablement, which is sort of Shopify ecosystem. Um, and then of course, like here and there, I have some hardware bets and random things that kind of challenge my own thinking. Cool. Um, but yeah, kind of all over the board, but maybe a bulk of it is consumer. Got, Got it. it. And, and that seems really in line with like the companies you built, right? Like I, I know you do like Shopify stuff. And so the DTC angle makes a lot of sense. And tattoo brand, uh, brand sounds really interesting. Um, not something you must I have some tattoos, right, Dennis? Yeah, I have my all my legs, like all my legs, both of them from my ankles <laughs> up to my, to my butt. And then I have uh, my chest and my sides and I'm probably going to do my back. But nice. Nothing visible when I wear pants. Well, no, nothing visible right now. But yeah, I guess for those yeah. who are watching uh, or listening on, on the podcast, they can always watch on YouTube and maybe you'll flash a tattoo at some point during the yeah. podcast. That could really, uh, you know, I spice things up a bit. I stuff on Twitter, so yeah. <laughs> I think there was one recently. I 80% of your body covered, but none of it visible, right? Um, so yeah. Uh, well, let me read your tweet real. And we did go over it uh, in a previous podcast, but I'd love to like read it back and then just hear some of like your more color on it. Um, because I think one of the things that uh, Harry and I were discussing before this was, this doesn't sound terrible, uh, but it, um, in like maybe in your sentiment, it sounded uh, less, less optimistic. So um, 2020 to 2023, zero return capital so far, two have gone to zero, two have taken a greater than 50% reduction of valuations. One is marked up a thousand percent six have markups of 300 to 200% and 28 have no updates refunding. First of all, there's almost a million views on this. So kudos to you for uh, making some <laughs> great content here. Um, but yeah, you know, like I was saying, my, my feeling on this was like, well, you got one that's marked up a thousand percent, depending on your allocation there, you know, there's a world in which you return this. Um, and these right. other ones are kind of in process. So 
I, yeah, maybe just give us uh, more of your take on it. That isn't just me, us reading it off the internet. And- yeah, so I mean, I didn't tweet this because I'm like, oh, look how great I'm doing or look how bad I'm doing. It was a little bit meant to be sort of sensational and sort of color between the lines on your own. Um, you're right in that the company that's marked up uh, 10x, if that one gets acquired, it'll probably be for like 20x. And I will recoup everything that I invested from that one plus maybe make a little bit of profit. So uh, basically with the 200,000 I've invested, that company would return almost, you know, 300 grand. Uh, and so, yes, but the timeline is very short, right? Like it's only the beginning of Q day three of Q2 of 2023 and anything I deployed in 2020 to 21 to 22, I'm not expecting to have returned any capital by now. This is just more of like a, this is the actual way this works. And if you have expectations of expecting to get something back in a shorter than this time frame, then don't do this <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm not like, oh, what was me? Look at the, look at how bad these investments are, or how good they are. Uh, but it's true, right? I mean, the timeline needs to be probably like, let me revisit this tweet in like two to three years. And then uh, hopefully out of those 30 or 28 that haven't given any updates regarding their next funding rounds, hopefully half of those will have either gone to zero or raised another round or two. Um, Because there's a lot of stagnant sort of businesses in that kind of portfolio, too, where I've seen them raise follow up funding, but there hasn't been updates provided to the investors on what that looked like. And Mm -hmm. so that's the downside of being a part of a syndicate, too, is that I'm not getting, you know, monthly investor updates. Yeah. So what were you, what were your expectations kind of going into that first uh, angel investment? And I think you mentioned that you were kind of looking at it like, hey, this company seems like it's not going to go to zero, might be a decent chance, but what were, what were your kind of expectations? And then maybe follow up, well, like how did the actual experience, you know, after three years line up with your actual expectations when you went into angel? Um, so I think with the first company, since they they are like shutting down or, or selling mm-hmm. off or to basically to wipe their debt, uh, in my head, I'm like, maybe this will allow me to help in terms of like, basically I'm giving you money so that I can have a job, which is the opposite right. of what investing <laughs> is. But as an angel investor who doesn't, I'm not writing checks out of a, a big fund. It's all my own personal money. So for me, I'm closer to my 10K that I give you than some guy who's going to give you 250 grand because he thinks you have a good idea and he wants to be the fifth person into a category and a new trend, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, in the weeds trying to be like, hey, let's get on a call every week. How can I open up my network? Who can I connect you to? Yada, yada. But also I think there's some opportunity in that like, by doing that, sometimes you can help people because they might need your help and they might want it. But also there are ways to make that fair and advantageous for yourself as an investor. This didn't happen in the first business, so I can't make this example, but in the second mm-hmm. one for, uh, that, I, that I brought up the tattoo company, I invested, you know, within that range of 2,500 to 15K. Yeah. Uh, and with them, they've, it's been two years since I invested or maybe two and a half, but because I've connected them with great agencies, which actually helped increase performance and reduce costs, yeah. those agencies have given me referral fees and finder's fees. And I've actually made back all of my in- initial investment in that company plus some. So mm-hmm. now I essentially just have free equity in this business because I went in and actually helped them. Right. So there are if I can actually go in and help and it's like only a net positive to you and there's no money out of the, you know, the company's pockets and it's just from various service providers like and it helps grow the business at a rapid rate. Like there are ways to invest and also still help everybody involved. So I think like that was kind of my initial thought process. But you can't do that with every company because 
I'm not, I don't have a, a network well, in every ecosystem. So it sounds like you were looking at opportunities, you know, the, the opportunity to angel invest to help. Was it, was you, were you thinking like, Hey, this could be a good business opportunity, either lining up with my day job or, you know, maybe I could just make money from angel investing. Like how did you sort of balance the two, like helping versus business opportunity? It definitely was. I mean, I, okay. So I think that in my head, I wanted to start getting deal flow and the best way to get deal flow is to start getting into deals was sort mm -hmm. of my thought. And so while I've, probably pissed off a handful of friends. Well, not really, but they're like, Hey, they invested in this first company with me too, a direct to consumer brand along with, you know, some other incubators and like, yeah, they went to zero, but like all those guys since then have gone on and made a lot of angel investments and some of them mm -hmm. have been really good. So for me, it was just kind of like, I'm willing to, that's kind of how I went, went about this whole 200 grand, right? Like maybe that was to some people they're like, that's too, that's not enough to get returns to some people. Like that's a lot to me. It was a, somewhere in the middle. Um, I'd be okay with, I don't want to lose any of it or all of it by any means, but if I lose all of it, that was sort of like the cap. Um, unless there was some incredible outlier, right? I mean, of course I want to make money, but for me, it was more like an educational thing to be able to learn how to do it in a better way. Uh, and so I think, yeah, obviously I wouldn't, I wouldn't angel invest for fun. Uh, but from the beginning, I, I thought I could sort of hedge and help companies, invest in companies that I could actually help in because otherwise my money's not really that valuable. I don't have enough as a personal investor to go for anyone to really care unless they're like, well, we actually just want you on the cap table because you've sold two Shopify apps and we have a Shopify app or we have a direct-to-consumer business and you probably have a good view of where things are and how to, how to maneuver. So you on our cap table, we don't want to give you free equity, but if you put money into our... You know, we'll allow you to write a small check basically because you have, because you'll get your hands dirty. Right. So I, I that's kind of how I thought about it and who I wanted to be at least as an angel investor. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you somewhat, whether you meant to or not, you have your kind of niche, right? You're the like Shopify app expert um, person that they want on the cap table and, you know, with investing, like they just want you to invest. So you have skin in the game. Right. Um, and do it. I kind of view it as like, you make all these investments. You're kind of building your sports teams that you follow um a bit so you get like invest in their brands um so let's i i want to hear more about like what you've learned through all this um you mentioned that you did some direct you've done some syndicates like tell us a little bit like what you've learned about making investments in those two different methods and what you think of the performance so far so, uh so the syndicates i've definitely done the majority because of how easy it is and at the end of the day, like my thought, and I didn't realize this until after, and now I kind of uh, scoot back a little bit on this thought, but I'm like, I want to be able to get deal flow and then be able to bring it to my friends because I think I can help raise capital pretty easily from other friends who are successful, who don't have the time to go looking for deals. But then I'm like realizing like, wow, that's a full-time job. And mm -hmm. so I have other friends, whether it's like Sam Parr and his business partner, Joe Spizik, they had a fund called Hampton VC, which is now called Hampton, like a new business they launched, but they had Hampton VC. I was investing in some of their deals because Sam having my first million, he gets a lot of deal flow because they want his, I assume yeah. his audience. And they also, he had a big exit. So he also knows how to operate. Uh, so there, there, there's various reasons why he got a lot of deal flow. So for me, I'm like, I wanted to do that until I realized how much work that was. <laughs> uh, and so for syndicates, I was participating to try to learn a little bit. And also because here and there, there would be some pretty cool deals. Um, the bulk of my investments have been through syndicates. Some syndicates I was like was able to 
get in touch with the person who organized them, maybe like one through, I think one or two with Sam, Sam and Joe, where I raised the majority of the money for that specific deal and we got added hmm. allocation. And so like I got the carry for that deal or something. So um, how did that specific uh, scenario work? Like you knew Sam and Joe, they, who brought the deal? Do you mind sharing like, like the details? Cause that's kind of, yeah, a cool so, idea. okay. So a specific company called, uh, they're a e-commerce enablement marketing company in the Shopify space. Mm -hmm. They raise money. I think they got very little interest from uh, Hampton VC's sort of initial pool of investors. And so, and I put in a little bit of money posted in a group chat of guy friends of mine who all run, you know, eight to nine figure a year e-commerce businesses. And all of them were like, one, I would use this app. And two, this yeah. is actually a pretty fair valuation. And the uh, all the numbers here look fine. Like, can we put in 10 to 15 each? Mm -hmm. And then within like 15 minutes, we had 180K raise and they're cool. like, oh, we only, we only got a hundred grand in allocation. We're going to ask for more. And then they got, you know, 200 or something. And they're like, well, we didn't even really fill any of this. Like your whole group did. So you, we'll just give you the carry. Uh, got it. Or, or we'll split the carry. And I was like, okay, that sounds got fair. it. So that was with Hampton VC. Hampton. Yeah. But in that yeah. scenario, I mean, I wasn't going to go around Sam and Joe to go right. to the founder. They connected me to the founder specifically so I could get more involved. So I kind of like have a relationship with that founder, even though we invested through the syndicate. Yeah. Um, and then you did the actual syndicate on AngelList or which platform? It was, it was Sam's. It was through, yeah, it was through AngelList. It was through Hampton VC, but cool. that was just an example where I'm like, man, in this scenario, I yeah. could have filled the whole round. I did fill around myself. I just didn't have a syndicate set up. I didn't right. know the founder of the <laughs> prior, it would have been very shitty for me to go around and try to yeah, do that I for sure. That. And so, but I learned then I'm like, okay, so that's, that's kind of where the money is though, too. Right. Cause paying attention to seeing like Sam and Joe, you always can see what the lead syndicate puts in. They put in like five or 10 and I'm like, well, they don't really have that much risk whenever they're five or they put in five or 10 on every deal. If the lead is putting in the most, that's a signal to me to put in more. Yeah, uh, but if they're putting in two, 5k on every deal, then they're just filling their minimum, and then they're just letting the rest of their investors take all the risk. So I've been I learned a little bit about like sort of how that looks and what signals yeah. to make me want to invest more potentially. But if I yeah. couldn't help directly and I didn't get direct access to the founders, I probably was only putting in you know a little bit more than the minimum. Yeah, I, I really like you. So I appreciate you sharing that example, too, because I think the world of syndicates, like there's no playbook as to like how a syndicate like Colin and I have syndicated a deal together. And it's sort of like, hey, who found the deal? OK, maybe we'll give you a little carry. But then we did one where he brought most of the money or all of the money and I didn't bring much. So it's like, all right, then how do you split it up? So it's like there's no perfect way. But I think uh, it's kind of I, I wanted to highlight that just because there's like a lot of opportunity to sort of you know, get extra leverage on your money. If you're putting 5k in and then you syndicate a hundred thousand and you get 20% carry on that, right. You're kind of like effectively getting four to one on your money, right. If it has a big exit. So I think that's uh, pretty cool. And so you mentioned the downside of syndicates is that you don't have direct access. Um, so how do you sort of stack up the two? Like, are you happy that you went that syndicate route, learned about it a bit? And now maybe if you syndicate, it sounds like you might do it yourself or stick to direct. Like, what are you sort of like, all right, I learned this from the syndicate versus direct. Like, here's what I would plan to do going forward, or here's what I would advise people to do going forward. Uh, I think, and this isn't something I've done yet. And I probably, I probably should, because I know some of the syndicate founders have reached out to me in the various syndicates that I'm in, but Mm -hmm. I think that if you can get permission to go have a relationship with the team through the syndicate, if not, then maybe it's not as interesting, right? It depends on how much time you have and how much, yeah. like what your goals are. For me, it was very much spray and pray. Let me put in as many <laughs> little checks into 
a lot of cool looking ideas and or companies that have, I mean, I was really just looking for three things. Are the fa- is the founder somebody who has a past with a lot of experience and a resume? Does Is the idea fucking amazing? And are there badass investors already on board? Those are really the only things I was looking for, hmm. right? And if they hit one of those three things, I was going to invest. If there was two of those things, I was like, for sure going to invest. And if it was three out of three, then I'm going to put in like more, right? Um, most of them were just kind of checking one of those boxes where it's like, oh, cool idea, not super risky, low minimum check size. And so at the end of the day, at, out of that bulk, you know, those 40 investments I've made, like maybe out of the 28 that have no updates, hopefully I get pro rata in a handful of them. And I'm like, oh shit, this follow on <laughs> actually is, is worth it. But you know, there's two that raise at a hundred million dollar valuation at the peak of COVID because they're prescribing ketamine over direct to consumer or whatever. And now it's 50, 50% cut in valuation and they're raising more. And then because we have pro rata, we get a double discount or some shit where it's like 65% off of the last, but I'm like, I'm not going to, I don't care enough about doubling down on, on like, I don't want to call them losers, but like in my (laughs) mind, I'm not going to be doing down rounds in, you know, that's like just not what I'm looking for. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, again, I'm, I'm kind of very ad hoc. My strategy is just sort of figuring it out as I go, but now I don't, I haven't been looking at angel list in the way that I was before, before I'm like, I'm making three investments every month or two and two a month, you know, and now it's probably only going to be if someone's like, Hey, Dennis, someone specifically wants you on their cap table or a friend of mine, like a Sam Parr or like someone like Nick Sharma, anybody who's very kind of high signal in the Shopify space is like, Hey, this deal is great. Uh, I put into a deal recently with Nick that was involved with like whatever night media, one of Mr. Beast's new companies and mm-hmm. the valuation is pretty high, but I'd put in money just because I wanted to be involved with, with night media and to yeah. be, you know, it's so again, there's like different reasons for investing too, but I also believe that one of the, most of the things that those guys do are probably going to be all right. Yeah. It's funny that you said spray and pray because, uh, the episode that just went out today from Kirk, uh, we met, he, uh, it's also, uh, I'd say a way he describes his strategy. Um, and he like, you know, I mean, he goes into like a lot of deals. Right. Um, but one of the things that I kind of heard you say too, is like, you kind of view it as a little bit of a, like a pay for entrance to get investor updates, learn, be associated with things. Um, like there's, you know, a learning element to paying to be on the cap table, right? Like you get information access, hopefully, um, and things like that. So, um, in terms of like, you know, just overall, like big picture, you're slowing down your investments, right? You're kind of targeted more to doing direct. Um, but you've, it sounds like you've had some success with doing your own kind of syndications. I mean, do you like, do you see yourself trying to do more of them? Cause I mean, it sounds like that text thread, I would love to be on that and get, you know, 180 K <laughs> in like 20 minutes, but like, it sounds like you, you know, that's you the way to network. syndicate a deal, by <laughs> yeah. the way. Uh, we're, that's uh... not a lot of work. Um, but you know, it sounds like you have a network, you have a following, you have an interesting point of view. Like, I think, like you said, you know, you've kind of got this Shopify world that I personally, I don't think Harry or I get any deal flow related to anything Shopify. And so uh, I'm just intrigued. Is that, you know, is that something you could see yourself doing is like knowing that space better than most and bringing people to it? Yeah. Yes and no. So I have like a, might seem like a pessimistic view on the ecosystem while also being somebody who's building a new, a third business <laughs> in the ecosystem. So it's kind of contradictive, but I, I do think that 
like I understand this, this space pretty well. And while looking at zoomed out Shopify ecosystem, like where are all the, where is all the M&A activity from VC backed apps? There's very, very few. And there's a lot of M&A activity for PE for apps that are bootstrapping to five to 10 million and selling for, you know, 50 to 100 or anywhere from 10 to 100. But the activity above that range is pretty stale. And so I think that, you know, that I don't know if VC flooding the Shopify ecosystem is necessarily a good thing because it just means that all these companies are, you know, artificially acquiring customers at, at customer acquisition costs that they can't afford to hopefully play this long game. And really that means that the ones that are bootstrapped have to try to just stay afloat. And then it becomes, I don't know, like if you can make it through that ecosystem as a bootstrap business, you're golden because you are generating cash flow and it's profitable and everybody else is just raising more money to keep, you know, finding a new basis on their valuation and keep that going. But once you've raised so much, it's like, you either need to get what acquired for hundreds of millions of dollars or IPO. And there's only, there's attentive and then there's Clavio. Those are the two apps in the Shopify ecosystem that are in the $400 million a year range. And then like the next tiers down is like under a hundred million a year. Like it's a huge gap. So I think, I, I don't know if, you know, uh, I think if you got into the ecosystem early and you were getting into the, yeah, like Clavio or like, Gorgeous, which is the Zendesk of Shopify or any of these apps that launched in 2015 and they're, you know, raising series D's now, series D, series D now or series C. And you're like, yeah, they're raising at 750 to a billion dollar valuation. Yeah, those investors did great. But there's just so I think there's just very limited VC opportunity this late in the ecosystem. The sort of the giants have already been built there. Um, but that's not, that's kind of why my company was called fake VC is because I wanted to, after we live recover, live recover was acquired, I wanted to go take that sort of same sort of feeling about the ecosystem and go buy or build like five, call them micro SaaS apps. Even though we say micro SaaS, we're still talking about over a million to 2 million in ARR for each business, but can you build five apps that do 2 million in ARR each. And then in aggregate, you have a 10 million ARR business and that multiple will probably sell for, you know, eight to 10 X. Right. So yes, I think there's something there, but I don't know what it is. I don't think it's like the traditional sort of what you would get out of a big, big money coming in as an angel investor to the ecosystem, but we'll see. Got it. Very cool. Well, uh, we appreciate you sharing all the info. And before we move on to our uh, final segment, trending Twitter threads, is there anything else? Uh, you know, we'll we'll leave a link to your tweet because I saw that you replied to a bunch of good questions and we didn't get to all of them today. But is there any other sort of like big takeaways or anything else that you kind of want to mention, advice, lessons learned from sort of your your past three years of uh, angel investing? If you could leave our audience with one uh, takeaway, what, what might it be? Yeah, I mean, the earlier you invest, the it's like, more of a, like a lottery ticket and the later you invest the lower upside, but the less risk there is. Like I invested in some series C companies just because I'm like, wow, if you made it this far, uh, as a series C business, you know, in weed technology or whatever enterprise marijuana technology for inventory yeah. management, I'm like, that's, yeah, that was just something that I'm like, man, get You either have to get in super early or get in late and just not expect as much upside. I think that's something that's like kind of interesting to think about from an angel investment perspective. I don't know enough about that. I'm just like, all my deals are super early and then they go bust. But if you can invest in stuff that is just 
series B or C with the foot or ABC, maybe you have less, less risk. So I don't know. Cool. Well, I, uh, I think we picked a couple Twitter threads. It'll be fun to get your take on. Cause I think, uh, with your experience as a founder, angel investor, um, we'll be able to, uh, share these. So I'll put one on the screen for those who are watching on uh, YouTube right now. But the first one comes from, uh, Aaron Harris, who, uh, he's on Twitter building Majid and co from demo day. So I'll share that right now. He says, great VCs say no quickly and clearly after a pitch, good VCs say no, after opening your deck 10 times over a week, bad VCs ghost you after telling you how excited they are. I love this one. Cause you've been on both sides of the coin. I'm sure, you know, on the angel side and maybe raise some money yourself too, or, you know, network chatted with VCs. So what do you think? Agree? Disagree? I mean, I think that if you're a VC and you talk to a ton of people, you don't, I mean, it's not like you have an expectation where you feel entitled where people just need to get back to you so quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's, if someone isn't interested and they just immediately say no to your face, like, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I think I agree with this for the most part. How do, uh, how do you handle, oh, Colin's telling me to close my DMs. Um, so nothing, nothing too bad in there, Colin, don't worry. Um, but, uh, how do you handle, like, if you meet with a founder or a company and like, you don't want to invest, uh, how do you handle that? Do you think about it? Like, oh, I just try to get back to them in a day or two or say nothing. Like what's your sort of general process? I think it depends on the founder and how they're speaking about things. I had a call with somebody a couple of weeks ago who was very, very, aggressive with about like how much he knew his app was going to be the next big thing. And like, I told him just straight up during the call, I'm like, look, like, I think you're incorrect on this. And I don't know if I can be helpful because I don't believe in your business idea. And you're asking for me, you're asking me for help. And then when I tell you my opinion, you're telling me that I'm wrong. So I don't (laughs) know what the benefit of us being on this call is. And, uh, so in that scenario, I'm like, I felt like by being honest and upfront, I hopefully wasn't being rude, but I was just being transparent, maybe saving him some time. But if somebody was like asking for feedback and wanted to, I don't know the answers to everyone's problem or questions, but like if it's specific about this thing, I might've known some things. And so being receptive and like, just kind of like genuine and not aggressive will probably get you a better outcome for both people, I think. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I struggle with this too, because like there, there's like, at some point you can't respond to everything and you don't want to leave people hanging. You don't want to be rude, but the, you know, there also is this weird expectation that if someone gets into your inbox that you have to answer them. Like, I don't, I also don't think that's true. Right. Like there's like this one ended one-sided pipeline, everything comes to you and then you somehow have this responsibility to do it. So um, yeah, I, I find that difficult. Like I, I do think quick no's are really appreciated and that founders. I think uh, Eric Bonnet, um, Hustle Fund said this, that really founders just want like a quick response, yes or no. And, and I do like, I try to do that as quickly as possible. Um, I can, I don't know if I nail it, but uh, seems like the way to go. Uh, let's go on to um, one more tweet. I have I had a last minute uh, change for this tweet. Oh. I like this one that I just found, um, or I, I think I saw it the other day, but I thought it was kind of cool from uh, Sieva. So I'll share that uh, right now. All right. So you haven't even seen this one, Colin, yet. Well, you want me to read I'm it? Putting you, I'm putting you, yeah, right. go ahead and read it, Colin. I've raised over $50 million in my career, and each time I raise money, people congratulate me. Why? Funding is an obligation. It's not a reason for celebration. Nobody congratulates you on getting a loan on your car. In the same spirit, we shouldn't congratulate people for raising money from investors. Dennis, 
Does, how does I mean, fake VC feel about this? <laughs> I agree with this for sure. But which is also just, you know, you look at the, the way that the news and PR and all this stuff works in tech. If a company that's like bootstrapped gets acquired for 10, 15 million, they don't get any coverage. But if a company raises a two and a half million dollar seed, it's like the homepage of TechCrunch. Um, but it's also because of the people who are they're getting money from, right? There's like a whole network behind raising capital. Uh, I agree with this for sure. I, I mean, we raised a small amount of money for vigilance and we had not raised for our previous two businesses. And in my head, I'm like, we raised 250 K, which is not much. And we raised it at a cap of a $5 million, like a $5 million cap on a safe and a company tried to buy us for $5 million. And we're like, we have to basically say no, because we have an obligation to go bigger than that. And in my head, I'm like 90 days of work, $5 million. That sounds great. <laughs> and my, my yeah. people who, the people who we raised from are like, no, like I thought we were going for, you know, 5 million to 10 million ARR. That's not going to be $5 million exit. So I don't know. Yeah, I'll uh, share uh, from uh, Elizabeth. I saw Elizabeth at uh, Dunk Hippo from Hustle. Uh, she said, totally agree with this. Raising VC money should be thought of as a loan, not a free prize. I mean, it is funny how people think of like, oh, you raise this huge amount. It's like, you're rich now, but it's really not <laughs> not the case. But I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not sure where I fall on this because it's like at the same time, it is hard raising money, especially these days. So kind of a, a little bit of uh, both. Yeah. I, think in, I think in the time that it can be something to be congratulated is if it's like, say you've raised a very capital conscious, you're like, yeah. only, you're tripling revenue or doubling revenue every year, but you're raising at a 50% valuation increase each time or whatever it is so that you can always grow into your own shoes. Then it's then, and then maybe you get to a certain peak, you take some chips off the table in the form of secondary in a raise. Yeah. Well, then that's something to be congratulated on because one, you injected capital to the business and investors thought it was at a safe stage for you to take money off the table. That's like, but those aren't things that are going to be disclosed in a, in a press yeah. release probably. But I think the, uh, on the, the valuation side and congratulate people, I, I think it is something to be celebrated if you're raising into strength, right? Like I, I think it can be a good indication of like what people are, you know, what you're doing. And so, but you're selling equity in your company. Right. Like you are like, and it is kind of weird to celebrate it. Like I'm, I'm selling part of my company, um, to have capital to run the business. Right. And I think that can be like, we're celebrating if it's, you know, for the reason of we're going to grow and grow faster. And this is exciting. We got this and this valuation because we did great things. Um, but in and of itself, it's just like, everybody needs it. Right. If you're going to be raising VC capital at an early stage. So, uh, it's like a participation trophy at that point. Probably uh, don't need to be uh, calling out those things. So, all right. Not wrong. Um, let's, uh, I guess we can call it there. That was, uh, I mean, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking to us, Dennis. Um, obviously, I will see you around the neighborhood. Uh, the kids <laughs> really want to skateboard with you um, and uh, see the, the dog. So, um, Thank you again for coming on and thank you for again for putting that tweet out there, which uh, put the snowball rolling down the hill in motion. Yeah. I appreciate the time, Harry and Colin. And yeah, zoom out timeline of three years is not long enough. <laughs> well, Sounds good. Thanks, Dennis.